Our sermon text this morning will be Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to consider the whole chapter, Genesis chapter 16. Before we read that chapter, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless your word to us. We pray, Father, that we would be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and obedient hearts that are understanding. Father in heaven, please teach us from your word, we pray. May I teach according to the wisdom of God and not according to the foolish imaginations of men nor devils. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 16, reading the whole chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram, Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So, Abram, the man of faith, who has in some previous chapters gone from strength to strength. He has separated from Lot and chosen to go into the heart of the promised land, though it was not yet his. Then in a pastoral action, he rescued Lot, who was by that time a prisoner of war. 
He meets with Melchizedek and once again chooses to follow the Lord rather than have an alliance with the king of Sodom. He's troubled, his faith is tested, and in faith he turns back to God, asking concerning a child. And God covenants with Abram. God condescends to commit his own immortal, eternal, amazing life to Abram. My promises to you will be fulfilled. And so we have Abram taking hold of the promises of God. He's seeing God pass as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch between the pieces of the animals. He knows he's God's man. God will make of him a great nation that cannot be numbered. He's God's man. It cannot fail. Ten years later. Ten years. Think about ten years. Ten years. Ten years. And Abram, honoured father, is childless. Ten years. You get all these wonderful promises. All these wonderful promises. And Abram, honoured father, is childless. Think about it. If your faith is tested like that for 10 years, are you going to start to struggle? I'm going to say many things here about Abram's failure of faith. I'm going to say many things. This is a failure of faith. This is a mistake. This is a bad idea from the beginning. But I'm not going to do this without sympathy. My friends, when your faith is tested, when God basically has you wait in hope for something that is not coming your way. It's promised, but you're waiting, waiting, waiting. And it seems as though all of creation is against you. And think of Abram. Sarai is getting old. We know that he's 86 years old. She would be getting to probably, I think she's 10 years younger than him. That makes her 76. Probably past menopause by now. Where is the child? So that's part of our background. Let's consider another part of our background. I want you to understand something. That's the legal situation. Who they were, where they were in their time. The Bible is not the only ancient document that we have from ancient times in the Middle East. There are other ancient documents or at least ancient artefacts. I'll probably say the name wrong, but there is a legal code called the Code of Hammurabi or Hammurabi. Not sure where the emphasis is supposed to go. But an ancient king of an ancient kingdom and we have clay tablets with many of the laws of that ancient kingdom written upon them. And so here's what I want you to understand in terms of legal context. Because I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, how could anyone get this idea? How could a wife get this idea? I haven't had a kid. I'm going to hand over a slave to my husband. And she can have the kid in my place, a surrogate mother. 
in that ancient code that I just mentioned, there were laws making allowance for this. There were actually laws. This was a culturally common thing. Think about it. I'll just stop for a moment and say something to you concerning laws. Have you ever heard of a law on any law book that would deal with what would happen should a man go to sleep a man at night and wake up in the morning a butterfly? You've never heard of any such law. Why? Doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Therefore, there is no law dealing with such stupidity. If there is a law on the books of a functioning nation, that law is to deal with situations that either have happened or are foreseen to be likely to happen. So you've got Sarai, who you would think is barren. That is the word that has been used to describe her. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. But she had a slave who had probably been given to her back at Genesis chapter 12, if you just want to look back and see what happened. Remember Abram's early, earlier failure of faith? They went down into Egypt. And um, God himself had to step in and set things right again. We'll pick it up at Genesis chapter 12. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Verse 16. Abram got male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. So this servant, Hagar, was probably given to Abram and co and Sarah, therefore, around about 10 years ago in Egypt. The scripture tells us that this girl belongs to, and I want you to get it clear, belongs to. We're using the word servant. It's polite. It's nice. It's kind of politically correct. Slave. This slave, this owned person, belongs to Sarai personally. She is her own owned slave, personal servant. So the legal code of that day, it actually made allowance for a wife to give to her husband a female slave in order that the husband may father children by that slave. And the children of that joining were legally considered to be the offspring of the man's original wife. 
That's where she got the idea. It was culturally accepted legal practice in the day. Let's speak more about the legality of what's going on here. I want you to see something. Sarai owned Hagar. And then we're told at verse 3, Sarai gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Understand, now we're thinking in legal terms. Who is now the owner of Hagar? Sarai owned Hagar. Sarai gave Hagar to Abram as a wife. Legal terms in ancient times. What does that mean? There's been an exchange. Hagar is now the possession of Abram. We're told clearly she was Sarai's possession. She's now been handed to Abram. She is now Abram's possession. She's elevated. Lifted, lifted as it were. She's no longer the slave of the woman. She's the wife of the man. Elevated. Guess what? That cultural law, that code of Hemorabi, maybe I'm saying it wrong, made allowance for this. And it even made allowance for what's about to happen. If the slave woman conceives... That law specifically says she must not be given seniority over the husband's wife. She must not be allowed to usurp the authority of the husband's original wife. The law says it. That cultural law of which we can assume they were basically familiar says that this slave must not become the senior wife. So she conceives... And when she conceives, she looks with contempt on her mistress. Okay, you get the picture now? We, we think of, we, we see that phrase and we think contempt. She's, you know, she's basically laughing at Sarah. You're, a, you're an old bag, an old hag, and you can't have kids. And look at me, I can. And now we know whose fault it is. It's not Abram's, it's yours. I'm sure that was part of it. But Sarai's problem is that the house has been put into turmoil. The order of their community. Now, remember, this is a community of some 2,000 people, slaves, servants, etc., etc. The order of their tent town has been put into turmoil. You had a lord, Abram. The lord had a wife, Sarai. And everybody was under that. You had an authority structure. Now you've got the Lord of that community, Abram. He has a wife, Sarai, and he has another wife, Hagar, who says, I'm actually the wife because I'm actually carrying his child. I'm no longer the slave of Sarai. I'm the wife of Abram. The house has been put into turmoil, disorder, trouble, so Sarai comes to Abram with a formal complaint. This is a formal complaint. May the wrong done to me be on you. Hang on, you say, isn't that, is that really fair? Is that really fair? Because it's very clear here, this is Sarai's idea in the first place. 
Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, going to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. But she's reminding Abram of actually how the authority structure works here. May the wrong done to me be on you. Men, stop. Think. Stop and think now. Let's first of all use the illustration of a military ship at sea. Who's responsible for everything, whether he does it personally or not? Who gets the blame for everything in a military ship at sea? When it comes back into the port and the reports are read, who's responsible? The captain, always the captain. If he failed to give the right orders, if he failed to impose the correct discipline, if he failed to give the right training to the men under him and they made mistakes, ultimately he is the man responsible even though he is not the man who committed the errors. He's responsible. Husbands, Sarai comes to Abram with a bad idea. And Abram says, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's put it into practice. You've come to me with a bad idea and I say, let's give it a shot. Sarai is exactly right. She's exactly right. May the wrong done to me be on you. What's the reminder? You had the right of refusal. You're the man with the authority. You could have, and it now turns out you should have said to me, "Uh uh-uh, bad idea. Let's not play silly marriage games. Men, got a problem in your household? (laughs) Are things not the way you think they should be? In any way, shape or form? Anything to anything in our relationship, mine, yours, with our spouses, with the woman God has given us? Is anything the way you wish it wasn't? What's God going to say to you? I made you my own. I gave you my spirit. I've put my written word in front of you. I've given you authority in your household. Your Responsible. You're responsible. Between Lisa and I, I'm responsible. Lisa might commit a sin with my encouragement. Lisa might come to me with a bad idea and I let the bad idea run. Concerning her sin, she is guilty of her sin. I'm not saying I'm not saying to any woman here that you are not guilty of your own sins. You are guilty of your own sins. But I'm saying to any husband here in the authority structure that God has installed in scripture, we are responsible. We are responsible. Shoulder the responsibility and be humbled by it. If your marriage is in any way not what you think it should be, the first person you blame 
is the person you see when you look in the mirror. Start with yourself. I start with myself. That's what God is telling me. You start with yourself. That's what God is telling you. Take responsibility. If your wife has sinned, she answers for her sin to God. But you have been given authority as the head of your household to be a Christian man, Christ-like in all that you do. And here's just a little thing that I've learned. The more I behave like a Christian man, Christ-like in all that I do, the happier my wife is to be my wife. And the more inclined she is to listen to what I have to say and the more inclined she is to honour me and to build me up and to make me happy. And the less trouble I have along the way. If she sins, she enters to God for her sins. But I, as the man with authority in the household, am responsible for the household. My friends, it's a burden. We must accept it and we must repent of our failures to be Christ-like in our own households. Guess what? If there's a problem in the household, Sarah's right. May the wrong done to me be on you. She's reminding Abram of how authority works. That's how authority works. If you want authority, accept the consequences of authority. You don't grasp authority. It's given. And in Christian households, authority is based on Christ-likeness. And we get our authority from our wives because they see the spirit of Christ working in us. And they love that. And when we fail, we blame ourselves, not them. Get that. Long-term happiness in your marriage comes from understanding that. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. I handed her over. The slave was given to you to be a wife. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. (laughs) What a fun spoiler. (laughs) What a fun spoiler. She's responsible in a way for her own bad idea. She's guilty of her own sins. But she's saying to Abram, you run the household, mate. You actually should have put a stop to this. I mean, you, 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 you ladies here who are wives, what do you think when you read this? Sarah, you're going to give a girl to your husband? What? You're going to give your husband a girl? Are you an idiot? What good can come of this? And she's saying, may the Lord judge between you and me. Abram, you answer to God for what you have done. You're actually responsible for running this household. You could have stopped it. You could have said no. You could have put me in my place and you didn't. Wives are their husbands for your sanctification. Believe it or not. Wives are there for your sanctification. They're our reminders of our failures. I know that doesn't sound terribly romantic. (laughs) I know that doesn't sound terribly romantic. 
But I'm not talking about romance. Romance is good and proper in its place. I'm talking about long-term, steadfast, covenant-keeping relationship where the person who is beside you, that wife of your embrace, is your most trusted, most close physical friend upon the face of this earth. The only one who is closer is God himself because by the power of his Holy Spirit, he indwells you. Apart from that, you have your wife. Wife, apart from that, you have your husband. May the Lord judge between you and me. At verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, notice what's happening here in legal terms. Behold, your servant is in your power. Think about it. What's happened? Legally, Sarai owned a slave. She gave the slave to Abram. The slave has usurped her position as Abram's primary, senior, wife, the mistress of the community. And what does Abram say concerning the slave when Sarai comes to Abram seeking a decision? He exercises his authority. He says to her, behold, I give her back to you. She is in your power. I give her back to you. You, Sarai, now have my Abram's authority to re-establish order in our house and in our community. Deal with her as you please. Do to her as you please. You see what's happened? The legal authority structure has now been re-established and Hagar has been put back in her place. No, you do not usurp Sarai. No, you do not become the senior wife simply because you're the one bearing children. We have to make the best of a bad situation. Here is the decision. Sarai is the mistress of this community. When she speaks, my word is behind her. She has authority. The wife rules her own house, my friends. Husbands, your wife rules her own house. We're not turning there, but in the letters of Paul, the wife is actually called the despot of her own house. Now, you know what a despot is. It's a ruler, a king, who rules with total authority. The wife rules her own house. Where did she get that authority from? From her husband. And if you've given her that authority within her own house, pay attention. And when she says, don't wear your work boots inside, take them off at the door. She's going to laugh at me because I was snapped at a few days ago. All right? And when, when she says, you say, what's for dinner? And she says, last night's leftovers and you're going to enjoy them? You're going to say, thank you, darling. I accept this food that you have given me under my authority. I said to you, run the house, and here you are. You've produced a perfectly edible, nutritious meal. Thank you. And when she says, I'm washing the bedding today and the sheets are too big for me to handle, you're going to get on the other end of the bed, bed sheets and help me get them on the line and off the line. You're going to say, you rule this house. I gave you the authority to rule this house and I'm going to help you do that. But that doesn't mean you run your husband's life, ladies. It means you run your household and you run his life 
in what it has to do with your own household. That's the structure God has set up. He gives you authority over his household so that he doesn't have to worry about it. But husbands understand when she makes a household decision, she has that authority because you gave it to her. And if you refuse to respect that authority that you have given to her, you've made yourself a hypocrite. Imagine. Workplace. Boss gives you a job to do. And you say, do I use the reciprocating saw or a hand saw? And the boss says, make your own decision. Whatever you want to do. So you think, well, it's easier to use the reciprocating saw. I'm going to go do that. And there you are, cutting the wood. And suddenly the boss yells at you, why are you using the reciprocating saw? Anyone would have known you shouldn't have used it. What do you think of that boss? You think, mate, you're an idiot. You told me to make my own decision to do it whichever way I see fit. Now you're telling me that you actually had a preference. Why didn't you tell me that you had a preference in the first place? And your complaint is legitimate, isn't it? You asked him. You sought his authority. He gave you the right to make a decision. He doesn't have the right to go back on that, does he? It's not right for him to go back on that. If he calls you an idiot for making your own decision when he's given you the permission to make your own decision, he's making himself a hypocrite. Husbands, when you give your wife authority over your household, you support her authority. And when she makes a decision with the authority that you have given her, you don't chide her and you don't tell her that it was the wrong decision unless she's actually in outright disobedience. You accept her decision. As simple as that. And you'll learn to get along harmoniously. Do not be double-minded. Do not be hypocrites against your own instruction, against your own, own authority. What did Jesus say about Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom must fall. Do not let your household be divided against itself. Now, does that mean you can't speak to her? Of course it doesn't mean that. All right. Of course I let my wife know that there are certain foods that I just really don't enjoy. You know, if, if zucchini only comes through the meals that we eat once a month, that's enough zucchini for me. Thanks. And of course, she loves me and thinks, well, I won't serve him up zucchini five nights a week. You know, we love each other. We're friends. We respect each other. But I'm trying to explain to you how the structure works. And this passage is the perfect example of how the structure should work. I'm already at 30 minutes. I don't know if we're going to get through the rest of the passage because I've sort of realised, honestly, as I was preaching, I've realised what's happening here. Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Okay, let's just talk about something. What in the eyes of the woke world around about us, what in the eyes of the woke world around about us, apart from patriarchy, 
A husband having authority within his own household and delegating authority to his wife. A structured household where there is a male and a female and one is male and one is female and we don't pretend that they're the same. We know that they're different. All right, we've already, we've already touched on something that the woke world around about us hates. Tell me what else does the woke world around about us hate? What else does the woke world around about us judge? As wrong, wrong and always wrong, evil, wicked, terrible. How about slavery? How about slavery? Wrong, wrong, evil, wicked, slavery. Guess what? We're about to see our God, our saviour God, the angel of the Lord, probably an appearance of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten son of God, say to a slave... I'm going to bless you. You're from, from you, from your womb, is going to come more people than can be numbered. And to, in her mind, this is the greatest of blessings. But here's what's going to happen to you, slave girl. Slave girl, go back to the slave owner. Slave girl, go back to the slave owner. I'm not in favour of slavery. I'm not about to put myself on the market, sell myself at the local auction. I'm not in favour of anybody being in slavery. I do not want to have slaves, ever. And if anyone is doing any work for me, I want them to be doing it willingly because they're getting paid a fair wage or something that is fair in return for the labour that they do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that slavery is a wonderful, blessed institution that in all instances instances, and in all ways is right and blessed. That's not what I'm saying. But this slave girl from Egypt, what was she in Egypt? She was lost, damned and cursed. She was an idolater. She was a nobody and a nothing of no value whatsoever. But she had the blessing of becoming a slave to God's own man, Abram, and his wife, Sarai. Let's read verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. I've run away from my owner. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. She is your rightful owner. Go back and obey her instructions. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So Abram's exercised some husbandly authority and put the slave back under the authority of Sarai. The slave runs away. And now God steps in and says, my man Abram put you in a certain place and you do not defy my man Abram. You see what's happening? Husbands, when you exercise the authority that God has given you in a godly and a wise way, God steps in and backs you up. God makes it work for you, even when there are rebellious people all around you. And this is rebellion. 
She's run away. She's tried to run back to Egypt. She's given up on hanging around with this religious family. I'm sick of them. They're mean and I'm running. Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude, a command and a promise. How does God deal with his people? Commands, promises. Obey the commands, trust in the promises. What's happening here to Hagar? That former Egyptian idolater. Now, don't get me wrong, she doesn't actually become a mother of the promised people. But she's being saved. You see, this life upon this earth, it's short term, it's temporary. In a way, in a way, it's nothing. In a way, it's everything and in a way, it's nothing. It's eternal life. It's the presence of God. You know, what's that first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? Man, which means what is the chief purpose for which God created mankind? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. She's being saved. Jesus is in the process of saving the slave girl. It's more important than whether or not her mistress is mean to her. It's more important than whether or not authority is on the right side. It's more important than whether or not Sarai's tone is nice. She's being saved. Obey the command. Take hold of the promises. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. What's the, what's the two-word summary of the gospel? Repent and believe. Three words when you count and. Repent, believe. <clears throat> I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now think of Abram's promise. Abram's promise is the promised land. Okay, does he receive it? No, but he's told that his children will receive it. Sarai, a slave girl with a woman who probably in a way justly, I mean, sorry, Hagar, a slave girl with a mistress who probably in a way justly hates her because she's been rebellious and been troublesome. What would be to her the great thing? Well, she's running back to Egypt where she would be more or less anonymous, which in her mind would be freedom. But the promise to her of freedom isn't coming to her, is it? It's coming to her offspring. They won't be slaves, in other words. They will not, in general terms, be a nation of slaves. We know people are slaves to their sin. I, that's not what I'm getting at. Hagar receives a promise. She will have offspring. They will not be a nation of slaves. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord, because I am that I am, because Yahweh, 
has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. That's not a slave. A slave is a man under discipline, under bonds. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Now, a wild donkey is not actually complimentary. But the thing is, in her mind, the fact that he won't be an owned slave means everything. In That's the way I'm reading the text. And everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. But he won't be their slave. He'll be against them, but he won't be their slave. You see, there's a promise, my friends. It's out there in front of us. We're waiting for it. We're reaching for it. In a way, it's ours because God has says it's said to us, it's yours. You have eternal life. You have citizenship in the new creation. You will dwell in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be a resurrected, perfected, eternally living human being, enjoying to the fullest extent that it is possible for a created being to enjoy the blessing and the favour of God. It's there. It's in front of us. We're not going to get it now, here. But it's coming. And we have a command to obey. Well, she has a command. Return, obey your mistress. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahoi, Beer Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. I don't know if you've got a footnote in your Bible, but I've got one in mine. I'm not a Hebrew expert. I'm just trusting the scholars. Therefore, the well is called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. So now imagine, Hagar turns around and starts stepping out back towards the camp of Abram. The place that she thought she didn't want to be, she's going back. And when she turns up, the boss of the whole place says, "Uh, you ran away and you were causing so much trouble that we actually thought to ourselves good riddance. That would be Abram. Now you're back. Please tell me, why have you come back and what do you think's going on? And she says to Abram, I met Yahweh. I met your God. Your God came to me by a well. Your God spoke to me. Your God told me that I'm going to have your son. Your God told me that your son is going to be called Ishmael. There's a bit of obedience here, isn't there? Abram realises this is a changed girl. This is a changed girl. She hasn't come back to cause trouble. She's come back to obey God. And she's come back to give me a son. Now, he doesn't really fully, we see it later on as we work our way forward through the scripture. He's not actually the son of the promise. And Abram at this point in time doesn't really understand that he's not the son of the promise. But she comes back. She tells him of her experience, tells him that this boy is to be called Ishmael because that's what Yahweh told me this boy is to be called. And Abram, in obedience, accepts that that is his name. 
Ishmael. God spoke to Hagar. Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that God has established authority within households. God has established, using the word that the world hates so much, the patriarchy. Husbands, God has given you authority. And the more Christ-like we are and the more obedient we are to the commands of God, the more authority we will have because our wives will willingly submit to us because they see the Lord Jesus in us. You don't demand authority. You get authority from God through being Christ-like. Wives, you will submit to your husbands. In Genesis chapter 3, God told Eve, you're going to be rebellious and sometimes troublesome, yet your husband will rule over you. And the more Christ-like he is, I'm sure, the easier it will be to practice that submission. But husbands, you will give to your wife the authority that God has said she will have. She will rule your household for you. And you won't be double-minded men. We will not be hypocrites and refuse to hear her authority. If you've given her authority, let her exercise her authority. When she rules over the household that you've given her authority to rule over, you obey her rules because in a way you yourself set those rules through her. Don't make a hypocrite of yourself. And your happiness in your family will grow and your relationship will grow. We've seen that slavery in this life is not the worst of all evils. I'm not saying it's the greatest of all blessings. Don't get me wrong. Two-edged sword is perhaps the way you could think of it. It's both a blessing and a curse in some instances. In some instances. Because any means that God uses to bring a person to salvation, to that person, that's good news. However God gets a person to salvation... To that person, best thing that ever happened to them. We've seen that God deals with his people with commands and promises. He gives commands and he gives promises. Because this life is not what it's all about in the end. This life is important, but compared to the importance of eternity, it's but a speck. I just want to give one last warning to husbands. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bought Ishmael to Abram. One last warning to husbands. What do you think, be honest with yourselves, I've thought about this myself, what do you think made it so easy for Sarai to get Abram to accept and put into practice a bad idea? You know, if she came to Abram with a bad idea and the bad idea involved walking bare feet across five miles of bindi eyes and broken glass, well, that's pretty easy to say no to, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? That's pretty easy to say no to. That's a bad idea. You expect me to walk bare feet across bindi eyes and broken glass? For anyone listening overseas, a bindi eye is a local type of thorn that grows close to the ground, sticks in your feet and stings like anything. But 
she comes to him and says, I got a girl and you can have a girl. You can take her to your bed. Husbands, why do you think Abram was willing to accept that bad idea? Come on, what are we like? What do we know? Let's be honest. The man you look at when you look in the mirror. Temptation to lust. What would be better than one beautiful girl but two? Temptation to lust. It was easy for Abram to be tempted to step out of the way at this moment because there was a girl on offer. Men, set a guard over your heart. The book of Proverbs tells us that we should always be delighted in the breasts of our own wives. Think of that. In the breasts of your own wives, let them ravish you. God's not against sexual desire. God's not against romance. God's not against us enjoying the sex life that he has given us with the spouse that he has given us. He's actually for it. He loves it. Good for us. Let the marriage bed be honoured. Amen. But my friends, do not be tempted to turn aside. Think of a few things. Let's look at just a couple of um, scriptures. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13. Let's read from verse 6. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Genesis chapter 16. The wife whom Abram embraces, named Sarai, comes to Abram with a girl and says, This Egyptian, oh, and the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, this Egyptian, she could have children by you. Turn aside from the way. Now, I know those words weren't used, but I'm hoping you get my point. Turn aside from the way. God has promised you children. Let's help him out. Turn aside from the way. Let's help him out. Let's get children from this girl. Turn aside from the way. And Abram should have said, no, 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 no. No. God gave me you to be my wife. God said, you are to be my wife. I don't understand how it's going to happen. Remember when he got tested with Isaac? And he said to the servants, look, we're going up over onto the mountaintop there to worship and we'll be back a bit later. But he knew he'd been commanded to kill his son. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that he had reasoned in his heart that God could raise Isaac from the dead. 
Even if I slash his throat and pour his blood out on the ground, God could raise Isaac from the dead. You see the way he was thinking there? Somehow or other, God will do it. I don't have to sin. All I have to do is obey and God will accomplish it. But you see here, he was thinking differently. I could help God out. I could sleep with that girl. I could get children that way. Maybe God needs me to break his commandment in order to bring about his purposes. No, 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 no. No. God does not need us to break his commandments to bring about his purposes. No, 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 no. He does not ever intend for us to break his commandments to bring about his purposes. He does not need us to help him by breaking his commandments to bring about his purposes. No, 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 no. Can I make it any clearer? The wife of his embrace brought him a pretty young girl and he said, yes. Wives, husbands, anyone here, don't say yes in that circumstance. Whatever it is. And I'm not claiming to be as innocent as the driven snow here. I need the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ as much as any other person in the room. Whatever it is, do not let someone tell you, let us sin that good may come of it. Husbands, do not say such things to your wives. Wives, do not say such things to your husbands. Friends, do not say such things to your friends. In any circumstance, whatever, never Never, ever, ever say, let us sin that good may come of it. Don't. And don't listen. Remember the commands and remember the promises. Obey God. That's what we're here to do. That's what we've been commanded to do. Obey God. Let God bring about his purposes through our obedience. No, 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 no. When someone comes to you with sin, the answer is simple, no. Even our most beloved spouse, you know, the person closer to us than anyone else, the answer is no. Does your husband, wife, does your husband in this patriarchal authority that I've just laid out for you, does he have the right to command you to sin? And the answer is no. And do you have the right to say back to him that would be sin? The answer is yes. Honestly. We don't play God. We play the servant's role and we obey the command of our master. And our master is the Lord Jesus Christ and his law reflects his righteousness. Do not do wickedly. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 10. Think about these words of the Lord Jesus. Understand what he's saying now. 
in the light of how someone who is one of his people indwelt by the Holy Spirit will behave. And you'll understand this passage, or at least some aspects of it. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father. Sons, when your father says to you, let us sing. The Lord Jesus says, no, I have set you against your father. You belong to me. And a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Do you live in a mixed household? I mean, how wonderful it is to live in a Christian household, husband and wife worshipping the Lord together, children faithful. What a joy, what a blessing. But there are many who live in a mixed household. And in a way, though they may love their family as much as it is humanly possible to love their family and long and desire for their salvation, in a way they are enemies because they will be seeking to turn the Christian aside from the way. Turn them to other gods. Turn them to other activities. Turn them to disobedience. In a way, they become enemies. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Think of Abram. He loved the idea of a son more than he loved the idea of obedience to God. That combined with the desire for that cute little Egyptian girl. And he stepped astray. He stepped aside. He went astray. He made his mistake. He fathered the enemies of his own children. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, in context there, that life is the life of our closest relationships. That's the immediate context, the life of our closest relationships. What Jesus was saying was amazingly radical, but it was in perfect agreement with the law that we've just read in Deuteronomy. Perfect agreement with that law. Do not let anyone, no matter who they are or how close to you they are, do not let that person turn you aside. Be willing to be, as it were, spiritually separated from them for the sake of obedience to the commandments of God. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Be willing to lose that life. One of my grandmothers, I was her firstborn grandchild. In the first 21 years of my life, I had never done anything wrong in her sight. The truth is I couldn't do anything wrong in her sight. Okay, she, she had crazy love for me, but then I did something or something happened to me. The Lord did something. I became a Christian. And suddenly this woman who had spoken to me as though I was an angel for 21 years told me that I was a brainwashed fool who believed nonsense. In a way, I lost some of my life at that moment. I have many fond memories of the funnest times, the most joyful times being spent in the company of that woman. 
in a way, I lost part of my life at that moment. Okay? And that's the Lord's commandment to you. Obey at the cost of life. Obey at the cost of family relationships. Obey at the cost of whatever. Just simply obey. Obey the command, believe the promise. And with regard to salvation, the commandment is repent. The promise is in believing you will have eternal life. Obey the command, believe the promise. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only saviour. He is the only one who can transform our heart and make us who we ought to be. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the Holy Scriptures. We give you thanks that you have made your will for us so clear. We give you thanks that we have salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we give you thanks that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we have been enabled to live in obedience to your will. Help us, Father, for we are weak. The scripture tells us that you know our frame, that you remember that we are dust. Therefore, our Father, we come to you seeking the strength of your spirit in order that we may obey you in all that you have commanded. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.